Welcome to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network, a show that streams health, happiness, and hope to the kidney community. You can download all Kidney Talk shows from iTunes and find a variety of resources to help you navigate this illness at rsnhope.org. Please welcome your host, Lori Hartwell, who has lived with kidney disease since the age of two. Well, welcome to Kidney Talk. Today, I'm going to be speaking to an old friend. Stephanie Johnstone is a licensed clinical social worker who has been nephrology social work for so many years. I mean, a long time. And she's really educated about this topic. I think over 35 years. She works with Fresenius Medical Care. And in 2004, she earned the National Kidney Foundation Robert Whitlock's Lifetime Achievement Award for her passion and has been developing counseling surveillances to improve the emotional and psychological health of chronic kidney disease uh, patients. And she's just a real gem to the community. So thank you, Stephanie, for being on Kidney Talk. Thank you for having me, Lori. So today we're going to be talking about an important subject that we're hearing a lot about, but we're going to be talking about pain management and how your social worker and the dialysis clinic to, to understand a little bit more about uh, what you need to do. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, why is pain management a really important to, to discuss right now and understand how things are changing in the community? Well, that's a good question, Lori. I think um, most kidney patients with any type of pain are noticing the changes in, in how pain is being managed today uh, from where it was you know, 20 years ago. But it helps to look back to the late 1990s to see what happened. Um, so in the 90s, it came to our attention in the, in the U.S. that our medical system might be able to manage pain a little more compassionately and humanely. Um, patient advocates were coming together um, requesting a more uniform system or guidelines for how pain was managed because they could see that doctors did the task of pain management very differently. And, um, and so the medical boards and medical schools and national forums joined together to create pain management guidelines and even required in, in many states that physicians attend mandatory CEU trainings to learn how to assess and manage pain. But at that time, while we were visiting learning how to do it better, and a lot of those ways we did it better was with uh, the use of opiate drugs, everyone thought they were pretty safe. But while we weren't watching too closely, the misuse of opiate prescription drugs was becoming widespread. And before we really caught on to the fact that these medicines could be highly addictive, we were already in trouble. So by 2016, just to give you an example, in that one year, we lost 42,000 people in the United States to opiate overdoses. And by 2017, just a couple of years ago, the U.S. had declared it a public health emergency. And they pushed out quick and succinct guidelines for physicians to rein in the use of opioids and keep their use more safe and accountable. So all of a sudden, patients with kidney disease and all patients with, with pain saw that the brakes were hit on their prescriptions and what used to be a situation where they could have their pain well managed no matter how many uh, drugs it took, we're, we have what we have today, which is a very careful consideration before any opiate drug is prescribed. But that being said, it's important to remember that the vast majority of, of patients that take uh, prescription uh, opioids for pain don't misuse their prescriptions. 
But still, national surveys show about 18% do misuse them, and our doctors are all very well aware that that's one out of five patients that they might have to worry about the risk of overdose and death. So it's a very tough time for all of the parties, patients and physicians. Well, and for me, you know, somebody who's lived with kidney disease for, you know, 50 years, uh, it comes with a lot of chronic pain. But I think um, when you're on dialysis, there's some pain that's associated with dialysis. And there's acute pain and there's chronic pain. And acute pain, um, can you describe some of the acute pain that can happen on dialysis? So, yeah, I think some of the more acute pain would be from... Um, or surgical procedures or uh, um, acute infections at the infection site. It could be from um, an exacerbation of musculoskeletal pain um, or neuropathy pain. These are the kinds of things where you're looking at maybe short-term care plans to manage that situation with other interventions that will eliminate it. But more common... And and studies show between about 40 and 70% of patients on all modalities experienced significant pain in the past three months on surveys. So most of those are more chronic musculoskeletal pains, bone and joint pains or fractures, and and the neuropathy types of pain. Not really even either of those related always to renal disease could be comorbid arthritis and diabetes conditions causing that pain. Uh, I know for me, um, I do have that that arthritis pain that's referred to as like muscle skeletal pain. And it it is hard for me to sit in a chair for three to four hours. And I really have to have the right blankets and pillows and everything to make me comfortable or my body just starts to ache. And uh, I think it's important to understand the different type of pain. I know one type of pain that is just when you cramp on dialysis. And that can be a because you may have gained too much fluid or your fluid's being pulled too quickly because they're challenging dry weight. And, uh, you know, that can also leave some pain. But uh, I think one of the things that's really important is to to understand that the game is changing with pain medicine. And and I like to share this story because I was in the hospital a couple of months ago, and I was in the care of doctors who didn't know me for a couple of days. I had had diverticulitis and some other things that had happened. And I think I'm a great patient advocate going in and understanding meds. And they started to look at me like a drug addict. Like, you have Vicodin at home? And I'm like, yeah, I just had an ankle replacement. You know, like, it was interesting because they weren't used to a chronic patient. They were more used to acute people who were from the general public. And to have a patient come in that's really well-versed and knowing exactly what meds work and what... It was actually a hindrance to me. And I went uh, for a while without being treated. And it was horrible until... My healthcare team came in and said, "We know her. We know that she's, <laughs> you know." Um, and it was just such a frightening, frightening situation. And um, I'd like to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, how if you have pain, how a pain man they they actually called a pain management doctor in for me uh, to be able to get me the prescriptions I needed at the time when I was going through this this episode. 
And that has never happened to me. I didn't even, I've never even seen a pain doctor until just a couple of months ago. Yeah, I think this is a very common step that a lot of hospitals are taking right now. And if you talk to any number of nephrologists, every hospital tends to have their own protocol, but very common to pull in a combination of pharmacy specialists, pain management specialists, and even specialists in the anesthesiology department to come together to form a team to decide what is safe regarding who should have patient-controlled administration pumps and, and who might be, you know, what kind of dosing we should, we should give to a certain situation. So they're really taking a team approach to make sure it's safe and to reduce the, the risk that's all around us of making the wrong decision. So you're likely to see these types of delays <laughs> a oh. little bit in, in the people that used to just prescribe for you and reaching out for more consultation. Well, and it was, I have to tell you, it was the worst hospital stay of my entire life. And it was interesting because I feel like I'm a pretty good communicator. I guess some people may disagree with that. But I had some new doctors that were like residents and, you know, they, they, they're still learning. You know, I, I always say, you know, you're, and I have a lot more experience than you do. So I know my body better than you. And I had asked for, um, I was so anxious because I had so many health issues, if I could have an injection of Ativan, like 1.25 Ativan. I said, that'll get me to just be more comfortable. And they asked me if I give myself Ativan at home, injected at home. And I'm like, are you kidding? Like, how do I know that? And I was really put off that uh, they need to train the doctors on this level of, of, not really understanding. I'm a patient who's been manic managing chronic pain for 50 years. And I, right. just to take that approach, like treating me in a way of, of being skeptical. And I was livid because I, my pulse was up. I wasn't sleeping because of it. And, and if you look at the symptoms of like drug addicts, that could be equivalent of those symptoms. But it's it's really interesting because the tr the way I treat was treated and this nurse came into me and I could just she's just an angel I didn't know what to ask nobody was telling me I needed a pain consult and the nurse said let me get you a pain consult the doctor came in evaluated talked to it within 30 minutes I was I had relief again. I was comfortable my my pulse was back to normal I felt like yeah. my life wasn't over I mean I was in a set a, a set of despair like I felt so horrible and I thought to myself I'm pretty good at advocating and getting what I need and I'm hitting roadblocks right and you know what could I do to prepare in the future in any scenario and I think that this is going to be a dynamic conversation and evolve as time goes by because there is a a problem with these medications for many people and you don't want to be that one person that has a problem and luckily I'm not addicted I'm addicted to arts and craft supplies I'm addicted to Joann's <laughs> and Michael's yeah. showing up at my house and with boxes but uh yeah. Um, so I, think I think what you described can be shocking because we just haven't experienced this as patients really before, but I think it really helps to prepare. And I know you will now after this experience going back in to say, this isn't going to go smoothly like it always has. So um, in advance, talking to your surgeon or your physician about what is your pain management protocol for mm -hmm. me in the hospital? Um, 
do I need to contact the hospital pain management department to have, can you write a standing order so that I might be able to have a consultant with from them if I need it so that you feel more in control of this place where everyone is just spinning. Right. You know, and I, I think everyone, and, and I think maybe five years from now, we'll have a little bit tighter protocols and those things. But right now, it's the patient voice and the patient preparation alongside the doctor is going to be really crucial to know if you hit that point of need, what is the plan? So that that will keep the anxiety down about this problem. And I was doing a little bit of research about just the new medications myself and understanding class one, class two, class three, class four, you know, and and opioids are like class two and like an Ativan or Ambien's like class three. And the higher the class, the more addictive they are. Then class one is like drugs that are illegal. And, and I was educating myself because I'm like, oh, my goodness, these drugs are really addictive. And, uh, um, you know, in the wrong hands, they can be uh uh, deadly. Um, in fact, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's it's sad, but uh, a lot of my friends have received calls for transplants because somebody unfortunately passed away because of a, a drug overdose. And it was a prescription drug overdose. So yeah. it is real. Yes, it is very real. I've also lost a friend that was a nurse um, after surgery to the same problem. So I think it's starting to touch our lives more directly and we're starting to understand why everyone is so afraid. And now we just need a really good plan, you know, and, and I think a lot of energy is going to go into trying to create good guidelines now. Now, um, let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, problems that pain medications can cause for you because one of the, the in addition to addiction, I mean, they're they're really bad because they can constipate you like crazy, and that can lead to other problems. So maybe go through some of the side effects. Yeah, I think I, I may not be as knowledgeable as maybe a physician or pharmacist, but I will share that um, in talking to pharmacists and managing the, the needs of our patients that are higher risk of hospitalization, on our calls, I frequently hear him saying that um, a patient's complaining about constipation and they blame it on their binders. And so they sometimes slow down on their binders when really by the time he looks at the case, he can clearly see that it's an opiate that's probably causing that constipation. So he feels it's very important to work together with your pharmacy and nephrologist to create sort of the right type of cocktail to, um, to so that these things can work together to prevent the problem. So again, more communication and not necessarily assuming as a patient that you understand how your your medications are interacting together. Pharmacists are really stepping forward to help a lot with that. Well, and, you know, I know for me, I, I could never take any type of pain medication before dialysis because, you know, it makes your blood pressure drop and and it can cause other problems. So you, you really need to talk to your doctor and and let them know about you know, when you're taking medications or if you get them from another doctor, they may not know about it, really communicating. And I think when I'm going back to this hospital stay, I always carry a little medication list with me um, of all my meds and I'm so prepared and they almost fell over with my medication list. And I'm like, yeah, I have, I had, I had, uh, you know, I have these meds and oftentimes they expire and, uh, but I've been a self-managing patient for many years and 
they just didn't understand that I was taking like 12 medicines, not all for pain, just for uh, just the Norco. But he was shocked that I had Norco. And right. it was it was such an interesting 20 years ago. You would have never had this conversation. Now we've learned from it. And it's um, going to be the pendulum swing because I'm thinking, wow, if I don't get pain management treatment, would I want to have that surgery? Um, yes. that, that's a reality. <laughs> I mean, like, I may not want it. <laughs> We're going to need a lot of reassurance and early communication around procedures for this reason. And and I think for this reason, too, patients may be prone to try to hang on to medicines or um, and that can be dangerous, too. One of the, the newest causes of uh, or the newest types of theft is for people that with an addiction to break into um, senior citizens homes and look in their medicine cabinets for these leftover opiate prescriptions so uh, you know we just you're likely now to have a, a prescription for five pills not 30 you know and right. you're likely to have a plan for disposing of the pill an agreement on how you'll dispose of those when your pain is managed again so that they're not hanging around so all these things are going to be changing in terms of how we're accountable for these medications in our community as well. And it's really hard to understand that addictive nature if you haven't experienced it. And uh, to think that somebody is so desperate. And I was reading up on some of the addiction signs. You can go anywhere. But uh, one of the signs is, is that you're always thinking about you know, where's your next pain medication coming from? And I, I thought, wow, I don't do that. Uh, so that's great. But it was interesting how it would drive somebody because how these medications work in the brain is it slowly makes you need more and more and more, tells your brain you need more and more, and you fill that need. So very I interesting. I think the way we've really been taught is that you don't really, there are a certain segment of people that really truly are addicted um, to the feeling of euphoria and the feeling of um, getting high. But that doesn't last long with these medications. Pretty soon, you don't feel a thing. The, you just don't get sick. Right. And then beyond that, you're going to need more and more to just not get sick. And what we understand about opiate cravings is that they feel very life or death, that people will make all sorts of dangerous decisions to access um, the feeling of not being sick. Um, so, you know, very, most people don't, don't use these drugs to feel high, uh, or to have, uh, euphoria. Most people really truly just want to manage pain, but it's very slippery as to when you'll develop a tolerance where the, where the medications no longer really work, work for your pain, or you'll develop some sense of chemical dependency, not really addiction. You're still not seeking to get high. Right, but you'll develop a dependency to where you'll start to feel ill if you don't have them. And that's what the, the medical team is really watching over. And there's going to be times, it possibly in our lifetimes, that we will need longer-term opiates to manage pain. So there will be a lot of guidelines to help us taper those down. So we're likely to see a lot more um, guidance from our medical teams on how to be how to stop them and slow them down when when uh, we are done with them, rather than just jumping off them. And so, it, so a whole lot of things are going to be changing. And, you know, people kind of confuse emotional pain with physical pain, and people on dialysis who have kidney disease can often have a higher rate of depression. 
So, um, you, you know, I, I talked about that in my book about trying to understand the difference between emotional pain and physical pain. And so I know that, you know, for me and pain, I love arts and crafts and I can get lost in painting or making jewelry. Can you talk about some other ways that people may be able to manage pain without using medication? Yes. And there's, there's quite a bit of attention going to these areas. There's a lot more literature out on the types of non-pharmaceutical things that help pain. So when you look at the pharmacy literature and you talk to the pharmacist, they look at really making sure the patients are feeling rested because when you're fatigued, your perception of pain can be more fragile. They look at mood. So when your mood is not elevated, when your mood is depressed and you have maybe some comorbid anxiety, which is common with depression, Again, your perception of pain, the perception of what you can handle goes way down. So your ability to manage discomfort changes. They have found that sympathy, that having people, loved ones around you to support you and, and have compassion for your state of pain is important. Um, and understanding, having a medical team and, a, and people around you that don't just say, oh, you're, why should you need so much? You have to toughen up. Right, but that really truly understand your experience can be really important. But the fifth part of this is what you just mentioned, Lori, which is distraction. Because the more we stay in sort of a negative, worried, heightened sense of anxiety about the pain state, the deeper we sort of groove that neurological pathway in the brain. They call this neuroplasticity, where we get kind of psychosclerosis, right? We sort of get stuck in it. And simple distractions, getting your mind off it, starting a movie, putting on some music, doing a different type of activity can actually dislodge some of the experience of pain. So so when people, um, I know the VA right now is, is getting into a lot of literature for saying, listen, we'll prescribe you opiates. However, you've got to attend to these five or six things alongside that in order to get your prescription. So they're sending them for life skills training on pain management. They're sending them for cognitive behavioral therapy to learn how to think about their pain, make it a friend, not an enemy. They're sending them for mindfulness practice so they can stay present rather than afraid that the pain will get worse in the future. So there's all this wonderful non-pharmaceutical support coming on board now, just from a, a psychosocial vantage point. That's really exciting. Well, and it is because, you know, I keep referring to this ankle replacement that I had and, you know, the difficult, the most difficult surgery I've ever had. And, you know, one of the strategies I use now because I'm, I'm several months out now, six months and, you know, just icing it takes the pain away. <laughs> I just put it up, and put some ice on it and the pain goes away. And, you know, you have to look for other ways that uh, my body gets sore because my body, you know, I'm not walking normally. So I get a massage and that helps m me feel better and some other things that you can do to, uh, you know, I'm going to physical therapy and, uh, Exercise is really important because if you're not moving a normal way, then other parts of your body start to hurt. So how do you have the proper gait when you walk? 
and right. stuff like that. So trying to fix the root of the pain problem or learn. And I have to put my foot up a little bit more and put some ice on it as it's still healing, which is not something I like to do. I like to be moving and going and and it's not very fun sometimes to do that. But, you know, that's one of the ways that I can help eliminate pain. I want to bring up quickly, too, because there's two ways to pain manage in the state of California, and that's through alcohol (laughs) and uh, um, a good shot of whiskey, (laughs) Uh, which, um, you know, what they used to do in the olden days, and I don't drink, but that's what they did with surgeries. They gave people alcohol, and then they operated on them. I mean, um, back in the early 1900s, which was, I found was fascinating, and that was a major breakthrough for pain management. And I'm not advocating alcohol, but, you know, don't switch one pain med for another. <laughs> yeah, I think I think we have to be really careful about trying to escape pain. Exactly. You know, versus manage it. So I think when you start looking at mentally um, using opiates or alcohol or any substance to go away mentally so you don't feel the pain, you have all sorts of other risks. I mean, as you know, with the fluid and alcohol, those things are obvious, but... The fall risk, right? The risk of not having the energy or the concentration because you're inebriated or drugged uh, to the point of being tired. You may not attend your dialysis treatment. You may forego your binders. You may not eat right. So the domino effect of not being present mentally can really be hard on chronic illness. And beer is very uh, high in phosphorus. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, you have to you have to manage it. In California, there's cannabis and edibles everywhere. You can walk into, you know, I was in Los Angeles. I went to see a play, and I walked into a coffee shop next door. We don't have this in Glendale, but they had a whole case of edibles that you could buy right there. And, right. you know, it's interesting. I've never tried that in the sense of, but, you know, you have to be careful if you decide to go that route, talk to your doctor and understand that it is another way to to medicate yourself and has the ramifications you just mentioned. Right. And that's a, another psychoactive sort of thing that could lead to making other healthcare decisions differently because you're just not as present. And th- those are the kinds of things to really talk to your doctor about. And I think doctors are much better versed in the use of those agents now and the risks and benefits. And I know um, several physicians that have basically come to the conclusion that they they understand that and are willing to have people take those types of medication. And I think it's important. We did an interview with Dr. Rafael Villacana about organ transplantation and marijuana use. And if anybody's mm. listening to this podcast, they should go look for that one because he talks about, you know, being evaluated for a transplant and you know, the thought process behind it in the different states and what you need to be aware of so that you don't get, you know, (laughs) denied or uh, thinking that you're using, um, because marijuana is a class one drug still in in the federal level. And uh, if you want to do some reading, I find it fascinating is to read about all the classes of medications and how the FDA classifies them. And I've been a patient for 50 years and didn't really understand that until I was preparing for this interview. 
Yeah, there's a lot to learn right now. There's also a lot of non-pharmaceutical approaches like you're participating in with your physical therapy and occupational therapy. But on, on phone calls with patients that are frequently hospitalized, we, I hear often that the patients and teams need to remember to come together to talk about the plan of care for this because it might be that a warm gel pad or some different type of gel pad to reduce pressure in the dialysis chair can really make it more comfortable. You know, and, and so to look at what kinds of things are covered by insurance to make the dialysis chair more comfortable might be one of the simpler things you can think about. The other thing, the very simple thing you can think about is your dialysis shift. So if you tend to have osteoarthritis and aches and pains, bone pain, joint pain, if you're getting out of bed in the morning, after seven hours of laying still and getting back into a dialysis chair in the morning for four more hours, your body doesn't get a chance to, to move that fluid around and lubricate and get rid of some of that pain that movement That's will help. Point. So you might be better off on the second or third shift if you've got a lot of musculoskeletal pain, right? So uh, these are the kinds of things to, to really sit down and think out. Ask your team to be your thinking partner, to share their plan of care, with you and to actually brainstorm what might be the best way for you to manage your treatment with the kinds of pain that you have. You know, one of the things that communication is so important and at the dialysis unit, your social worker is there. And can you talk a little bit about, you know, what do people do if they think they may have an addiction? They may be fearful of, of having a surgery because they had a bad experience. Uh, what are some strategies and advice that you can give to people who may be going through that fear-based, fear-based, oh, my God, what am I going to do? I'm afraid to talk about it. Yes, I, I think that's a really good question. I think a lot of people might be starting to go through this now and be be very quiet about it because, like you said, of the stigma. Um, they're reading the news. They're hearing the views toward uh, people that are that are becoming addicted, and uh, they don't want to be in that party. So I think they, if you're out there and you're hearing this and you're starting to gather concerns, it's great to start with with your your nurse or your social worker or, or to ask for a, a meeting with your physician and your team to just say, you know, I'm not at this point yet, but I'm starting to be concerned that my pain needs will not be managed and the the medication I'm being given is starting to change on me. And I want reassurance that you guys will help me through this um, so that we can really stay thinking partners with you and attentive to the anxiety around this problem. So we would advocate at that point for, you know, the physician to weigh in, of course, where do we start with this? But we might want to pull all sorts of other specialists in. We might want a pain specialist, a rheumatologist. Uh, we might want to talk to a pharmacist consultant about uh, tapering and adding a different agent. Um, we might talk with you about being patient during that period of change, right? So you can't assume that on day one that we make that shift that if you've got a little bit more pain, it's not going to work. So we'll be, we need to be really be talking really tightly during this period, but keeping you at the table so that you know everything about what we're thinking and what's happening as we manage this problem and keep you safe and get you comfortable again. Because there's a good chance if you've got that problem brewing, the medicine you're taking now may not always work for you. So it's good to talk to us earlier rather than later to make sure your pain is well managed. I, I, it's so true. I was having a conversation with somebody who came to our 
a, a group one time, and I don't have the information, but they're like, oh, I have to go to the pharmacy. I need to get some Tylenol PM. And I'm like, oh, well, wow, okay. And then they revealed that they were taking six Tylenol PM a night. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, that's not safe. And no. they thought it was nothing because it was over the counter. And, you know, Benadryl is a, a medication that was prescription when I was, <laughs> when I went in the 80s, it was a prescription medication. And Tylenol PM is Benadryl and Tylenol, basically. And, you know, so one of the other things I just wanted to put out there is that there's over-the-counter medications that can be also abused. And yeah. you need to, um, because they, like this person, they were taking two, now they're taking six. And, um, you know, eventually, uh, unfortunately, a lot of those medicines can cause kidney failure if you have a transplant. And and they're not good on your organs, uh, uh, long-term use. I had yeah. a friend who had took so much Tylenol, her kidneys failed. And she... This is really <laughs> important, Yeah. Yeah, this so this is really important. You so think I think it's that safe. also this in the moment where people make decisions to take double dose, triple dose, quadruple dose of those types of things are those lonely nights when you're right. lying there alone, you feel so separated from the world around you that's sleeping peacefully, and you've got pain and you can't sleep, which those two things really set each other off. And you're just saying, forget it. And you're just grabbing at that over-the-counter medicine for any relief you can get. Right. That's definitely a time to call your team in. Exactly. Right? That's definitely a time to say, I need to call a plant of care meeting together because um, I'm worried. You know, and to not feel ashamed of that. I think if anything, these days, you'll be celebrated to, for coming forward early. For being honest. Um, and, and can you can you add anything else that we may need to talk about? Um, I think the the one other thing on my mind that I that I frequently think about now is that we do really have people with kidney disease that need um, significant pain management, you know, medication um, that have severe osteoarthritis, um, bone pain, cancer. Right, we're in living long enough on dialysis to reach the state where we won't be thinking maybe about tapering off opiates. And if if you are listening to this podcast and you're in one of those categories, I think um, my heart goes out to you and it's more important than ever to talk about your needs. And that's where we often pull in um, not just pain specialists, but palliative care specialists. And I always want to make sure that you understand palliative care is not hospice. Palliative care is a subspecialty designed to, to collaborate with us Maybe see you in your home, uh, speak with our physician about managing um, your pain both in the clinic and at home if it's chronic. So that we have someone watching, another set of eyes collaborating with us in your home environment. And that's something that's uh, covered by Medicare and very, very common now um, that can help also advocate for your needs for pain management. So that's somebody we might pull onto the team to say, this is going to be something that we we want to continue to watch over and keep, make sure you're kept comfortable in if there's nothing else we can do about eliminating your pain. So very important to know that that's out there. And at, at the point where you might need chronic opiates to manage pain, don't be surprised if you're asked by your physician that's prescribing them, might be a pain management physician, 
to sign a pain management contract, right? For you to promise that you're not going to say you lost those pills and you're not going to be giving them to anybody in your family and that you're not going to be missing your appointments and trying to refill those pills too soon and that you'll stick to one doctor that prescribes them and one pharmacy. So that's the kinds of things they might ask back from you if they're going to be engaged in giving you those medications for long term. And, you know, I think it's important because people are like, oh, you're going to take it away from me if I talk about it. And it's really a communication is so important. And I just thought of one quick thing because I went through some of my medications and I always have a little bit of leftover antibiotics or they switch one or I had pain medicine that, you know, was expired. And uh, you need to dispose of it properly. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, I was... Um, in the city of Glendale, we have a place where you can take it safely and they discard it. Do not flush it down your toilet <laughs> because the fish don't like the medication. Um, yes. uh, we don't want to get them addicted <laughs> and um, to uh, opioids. So uh, learn where you can dispose medication if you're getting rid of it. And, you know, ask your social worker. I'm sure she knows, but just don't throw yes, it in the and trash. Your pharmacist, they, they usually know where the community disposing sites are, or some pharmacies actually have a certain day that they take those in. Yeah, don't throw it away them. and let the birds eat it. Or, don't flush it. <laughs> and yeah. Don't flush it because it's... um. It's, and be aware of who's in your home. I mean, we may have, know. you know, grandkids visiting with teenagers that are starting to get exposed to these substances and just be aware of where they are at all times and that they're not so easily accessible to someone that can use them very hazardous and possibly even to cause death. Well, and I heard this on the news. I heard a, a kid in high school had a fentanyl patch on that because yeah. they were so addicted. And I'm like, I've never even like a fentanyl pain patch, like a perfectly help, healthy teenager and um hopefully they're getting the help they need but i'm like it never crossed my mind how serious this is and how um people are seeking any type of medication and and it's all going to touch our lives in some way if it hasn't already so uh thank you so much stephanie for sharing your expertise on this you know it's a difficult topic i think it's an evolving topic of course but uh we hope that people will let us know their thoughts and and tell us what their experience is and, you know, add to the conversation of ideas and ways to get through this with uh, not too much pain. <laughs> yes, I hope so too, Lori. And thank you very much for having me today. Thanks for listening to Kidney Talk, a program of Renal Support Network. Please make sure to find us on Facebook or sign up for our newsletter at rsnhope.org. Kidney Talk is intended for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment from your physician. Always seek the advice of your own health care provider regarding your medical condition.